Welcome to Take a Moment. I'm Mari Yamaguchi. And I'm Nathan Bennett. Welcome to the third and final episode in our three-part series of Leadership Through Crisis. Today's episode is entitled Allyship in Action. And our guest is Don Nault. Don is a CEO and founder of Nault Coaching and Consulting. And for decades now, Don has been an ally. But Mari, I know you came into contact with Don very recently and knew that he would be a great guest to have for these discussions. And I'm wondering from your perspective, why Don? Why now? And why is allyship so important to our society, to us as individuals, and to organizations in general? So Don actually was introduced to myself and a number of colleagues here at Genesis, mostly through the work that we've been doing in propping up employee resource groups or affinity groups, as we call them here, following all of the things that have been going on since the Black Lives Matter movement and really to address that part of social and racial injustices, not only that we're seeing outside, but also within corporate walls as well too. And I guess I should point out the reason why we really gravitated towards Don was the fact that this has been, like you said, his decades long work. It isn't something that he did just because it's a popular thing, it's on social media, and it's in all of our faces. It's been his passion and the impact that he's been able to have on not only the organizations, but on the individuals that he has helped over the years is huge and it's an immense. And one of the things that really stands out about Don is his talk about allyship and what that means and the work that he does in helping affinity groups and those folks that are consider not part of the majority, how to help them find their voices and how they can approach executives to become not only their allies and sponsors, but also mentors to have them be able to use their influence to not save those folks <laughs> that are in marginalized groups, but really to have them get their voice so that they can speak out and speak up. No, the term ally isn't a perfect term. There's a lot that it might imply or not contain in and of itself, but we thought it was a good place to start for this discussion. And that's part of what we discuss, why Don uses the term ally and what he thinks that means and how he applies that to his daily life and also his career and his passion. If you are someone who is seeking to either start being an ally or continue to be an ally or just wanting to know how you can come alongside of folks who are experiencing systemic oppression of any way, this conversation will be eye-opening to you. We're glad you're here. We were happy to have Don as our guest. So we hope you take a moment and listen with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your role as CEO and founder of Nolts Coaching and Consulting and what, through your long history in information technology, brought you to this coaching passion and consulting passion at this point in your life? It's a, it's a great question. I had a 40-plus uh, year career in technology two of which were with what you would call core technology companies, 17 years with Digital Equipment Corporation, and 18 years with Cisco Systems. In between there, I started off in the healthcare field as a programmer, and in between the Cisco and the um, Digital Equipment stint, 
I was with Bell Atlantic slash Verizon, where I ran the outsourcing piece of the business. So I've, I've been in IT, core IT. That's where I started my career. Went in through to consulting and outsourcing, and I ended my career leading a professional services organization for Cisco Systems that was focused on, started with our service provider customers, think AT&T and Verizon, moved that to public sector. So think federal government, state and local governments, and global governments. And then lastly, with our largest global enterprise customers. Uh, meaning Cisco's largest global enterprise customers. I had a great breadth of experience, but throughout that experience really, really gets to your question. What I became super interested in is how to help people come along behind me. Because one of the things as leaders we need to be doing is thinking about how do we foster the growth of others? How do we bring them along? So that when we're ready to move on, whether it's permanently or to another assignment, there are people to choose from. There are people that have experiences that are ready to step in. And not just for my job, but for those that report to me and those that report to them. It's important that you have that kind of process. So in doing that, one of the things that I started thinking about, and I have to thank my wife for this, is really thinking about those that are disadvantaged through the process. My wife was, was in a professional career and there were a couple of situations that came up that really irked me. You know, first one was that, you know, when she showed up to work one day and she was a radiological health physicist, she showed up to work one day and the very first, the very first day of work, her boss said to her, Hey, welcome to the team. Do you type? Here's a person that's going to be running a technology organization within the radiological health physics organization, right? A year later, she had two peers, both males. And her boss said to her, it's time for annual reviews. And I want you to know that you got a little bit less than the other two because they have families to support. Those two single things are what caused me to go, huh, wait a minute. What can I do to help avoid those kinds of situations for others? And so that started my learning process. So it started with women, branched into people of color, African-Americans, Blacks, and frankly, doesn't stop there. It's really anybody that's disadvantaged by the, organ by the organization or the system or whatever that I'm interested in. So that's a little bit about who I am, what I got to, where, how I got to where I am. And then the real kicker was there was a, a, a group of women that had gotten together while I was at Cisco that documented the stories of how I had helped them over the years. They ended up putting on a recognition event for me and that's when I knew, because I was starting to think about, okay, so I'm getting older, you know, it's probably uh, time to think about what's next, what's the next chapter, but I didn't know. And then I knew that this next chapter for me was to turn to coaching and really help those that could use the help and use the vantage point that I had as a white male in a technology organization. It's interesting when you talk about you started your learning process can you talk a little bit about what that looked like? Because as another white male, I'm also interested in learning and have started that learning process myself much too late, to be frank. And I'm wondering what the learning process looked like for you and if you can kind of give us some tips or places to start where we might start learning as well. When we talk about learning process, I mean, to me, there's a couple of different vantage points, right? One is learning how to be a leader and learning what it means to be 
gifted with the responsibility of leading an organization. And then the second piece of learning for me was the learning process of how to be a coach and what that means and what that doesn't mean. Because as I came to learn, there's a lot of what it doesn't mean. So I think the leadership process in terms of how to be a leader, how to, be, how to have empathy for folks within your team, how to be able to have the open and honest conversation with somebody when they need to have it, how to recognize those situations where you have talent sitting in front of you that could use your expertise either as in a directive way, in a mentoring way, or in a coaching way. And those are three very distinct situations, right? And as leaders, a lot of us make those decisions real time. It's kind of one of those things that, okay, I don't really have time to go through and be the mentor or be the coach. So I'm going to have to direct, go do this. Here's the answer to the question. You know, go do that one and we'll talk about it later. The mentor would share their experience and say, this is how I would do it and have a discussion about it, right? And then the person can get to where they need to get to. The coach, on the other hand, asks questions. The coach is more interested in trying to figure out what is it that you know about what you're thinking about doing and be able to ask the questions that help the person explore the path forward for them. So it's really those kinds of things that I learned through the process that brought me to where we are today, working as a coach and a consultant. And really, if you think about it, those, and you really, and you kind of look those up in the dictionary, coach and consultant are really opposite ends of a spectrum. Both ask a lot of questions. The consultant is there to kind of also provide their opinion and put their spin on what the answer to the question is. The coach is there to ask questions. The coach is there to see and help you discover what's right. I think about it in terms of being able to clear the fog so that you can see the path forward. And we do that through questions and probing. So I had the opportunity to meet you, Don, through the coaching that you have been so gracious enough to extend as Genesis employees have really come together to create individual uh, employee resource groups. And through that, you talk about allyship. You helped us really galvanize what it means to have an employee resource group. Kind of tell us a little bit about your journey in that realm of allyship, and maybe we can kind of begin with defining what that means and going from there. You know, allyship is kind of a simple concept, but it's hard to implement. And so when you think about an ally, you think about somebody that's willing to stand beside you, even if you're not in the room, and to be there to guide and coach and when you are there. And to some extent, you know, some of what I just said sounds like sponsorship too, right? Because if you're not in the room and I'm your ally, I could also be your sponsor, right? I could be looking out for opportunities for you and being able to try to see what can I do to position Mari, you know, for this next role, for instance, if we're working in the same company or even if we're not working in the same company, right? The, the ally comes into play, though, when you think about how does someone stand beside and stand for and defend? And this is a little bit of Don's interpretation of allyship here. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's being written about allyship today. And I kind of look at it from that perspective. Because it is a huge topic, right? That's yeah. really top of mind right now as folks are really grappling with all of the systemic racism and social injustices. And like Nate had mentioned before, how 
does someone who is in a perceived place of privilege, whether it's mm -hmm. in their seniority in a company or in the terms of maybe on the racial side, if you are of the majority, what does allyship look like for those that are considered in that privileged section? And I don't know if yeah. we can maybe break down what privilege means and then maybe go into what allyship really means. The first time someone said to me that you're privileged, I kind of stepped back and I said, wow, what do you mean? I mean, I, and it really caused me to step back and think about the relativeness of privilege, right? And there are things that I get or that I have gotten because of the color of my skin or my gender. And, you know, frankly, because also because of the language I speak, you know, that's the, that's the whole concept of privilege. It's kind of like, and, and at that point I was able to then accept it and say, okay, how do I leverage privilege, my privilege, the privilege I have as a white male on behalf of others? And to me, that's the core definition of allyship. When you're ready to put your privilege on the line and use it for the betterment of someone else, to me, I think that's, that's a really a, a core piece of that definition. You know, people could wonder, you know, is it risky? Yeah, it can be risky, but a lot of things in this world are risky. Driving a car could be considered risky, you know, especially in some places. You know, walking down the street could be risky for a lot of different reasons. When it boils down to it, the right thing to do, what's the right thing to do is really to try to figure out how can I leverage every single bone and breath of me on behalf of someone else? And to me, that's a core piece of what allyship is. When you talk about privilege, that's something that I've had to kind of do a little bit of soul searching on myself, because I think maybe like you, when you first hear that you're privileged, you, you know, your immediate thing is to be defensive, to say, well, no, I, yeah. you know, I've worked for this and I work for that. And, you know, I haven't gotten handouts or blah, 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 any, any number of things that might go through a, a person's mind. I think one of the things that I'm learning is not only does privilege manifest itself in the things that you get or the tangible things that you can feel or money or positions or blah, 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 blah. I think what it might also contain is the things that my privilege allows me never to have to think about. Because the world for me is a very comfortable and hospitable place. And to hear a black father or parent, I'm thinking of someone specific, of a story that, I, uh, that recently impacted me. To hear that, it's a fairly common practice for black parents to have to teach their children how to operate in the world so that they just come home at the end of the day they must have a receipt with them no matter what store they're leaving. If they've made a purchase, you carry that receipt to you. I've heard parents have advised their kids never to wear hoods, to not play their music loud, to make sure, of course, that they're driving the speed limit, but to make sure that your identification is with you at all times. Um, among another growing list of things that I, as a white male, has never had to consider. And that's another aspect of privilege, just those things that we just don't have to worry about simply because of our skin color. I wonder when you go into an organization to promote allyship, what are some of the roadblocks that you see in individuals and in corporations that are saying, no, I'm doing enough, 
Or maybe they're saying, you know, hey, we already treat everybody equally here in our company, so we don't have a problem. Where do you begin to address those concerns or those misperceptions that an individual organization might have so that they're open to learning more about how to become an ally? There's a lot in there. There's the whole concept of allyship. There's the whole concept of sponsorship. I as a sponsor for you uh, within the organization. And sometimes people get those confused, right? But they both have an underlying requirement is that when things get tough, when the discussions get tough, your position doesn't change. You're still the sponsor. You're still the ally. And that's when it really means something. It's not that you can stand for somebody on principle and then when something more fun comes along, you're, you know, you're gone. It's really when that going gets tough, that's when you really need to be there. I can remember a, a conversation that I had with, with an individual who was having a challenge with one of the folks that, that worked for me, happened to be an African-American person. In essence, they wanted me to remove that person and the person worked for me. I took my job as leader, you know, extremely seriously. And one of the things that I expected of the folks that worked for me was that they would, they would perform and we would have conversations if there was issues. This particular situation, though, was one that was really interesting because when I pressed for details, there weren't any. And so I just said, you know, look, unless you can give me some reason, I think it's time for you to leave my office. Now, if you think about that, yes, I was in a position of power, right? A decision-making position. Was that sponsorship? Was that allyship? I would guess that, granted, it was, I was, it was leadership for sure, but I would categorize that as allyship because I was taking a position on behalf of someone else in a difficult situation that was probably not a popular position for me to take in someone else's eyes. But at the end of the day, it was the right, the right thing to do because there was no cause. And so I hope that kind of gives you an idea of what I think about allyship and why that's so important. When I'm talking with organizations or people about allyship, it's those kinds of stories that I bring up that help them understand that it's really one of durability. I shared with you folks an article that was written by um, Peter Bronsky. And he talks in there about durable ally and thinking about the fact that, yes, it's authentic. It's not performative. It's got to be persistent and it's got to be sustainable and it's got to be proactive. So when you think about all of those things that make up, you know, and there's a lot of different ways you could look at allyship, but to me, those kind of resonated really well in terms of this is what an ally is. And when I look at what I do, I fall short in some of those areas. Yeah, but I'm still working at it. You know, it's a work in progress. And I think that, you know, that's what's important. Do you think because of how much the word allyship is being used right now is really it's being an accomplice or being somebody that's ready to roll up their sleeves and be in the trenches with, with somebody? Is it time to maybe shift that word from ally to something else like an advocate or a sponsor? to really make it more, like you said, proactive and persistent and sustainable. It wasn't very long ago where you really didn't hear the term ally. And ally just kind of came into being, if you will, not too long ago. For me, I think advocate is not strong enough. Whatever word we settle in on has to include skin in the game for the person who is. 
right? If I'm going to be your ally, it needs to indicate that whatever word we want to use, it needs to indicate that I'm putting myself, I'm all in for you on your behalf. That's what's important. It's kind of like the Texas hold them all in, right? It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you all 100% of the time, right? We're going to have disagreements. We're going to have, hey, Mari, I think you went a little too far here. You know, you might want to think about this or Nate, ease up on that one a little bit, right? I can be coach at the same time as ally. But I think that whatever word we settle in on, it's got to connote the fact that we're in on your behalf. We're going to be there when you're not there. We're going to be there when it's tough and you're not there or you are there to help advocate for and ensure that you're treated correctly to the best of our ability. So then there's this perception sometimes that it can be misconstrued as saviorship. Mm -hmm. How do we balance that perception of just because you are acting on behalf of, voicing on behalf of, that it doesn't become, I'm being a savior? A true ally is not only standing there for you, but standing there with you to also help you be better. You know, if you think back to the, if you think back to the example I gave, you know, where I was asked to remove somebody and for no apparent reason, that conversation could have gone very differently, right? That conversation could have gone with, so here's my evidence. And then we can have a conversation. Okay. What's the right path to take relative to that evidence? So to me, I think whether you want to call it ally, sponsor, or advocate, or whatever word you want to assign it, it's, got, it's always on the behalf of that person, but it's not always to take that person's position. It's really one of trying to help the individual understand what the right position is or why maybe the position they're taking is not necessarily the right one or what the issues are with those. I hope that makes sense. It does. And of course, this is obviously a complicated topic and we have much more to say on it and to hear from you, Don. But right now, we've got to take a quick commercial break. Stay with us for more. Take a moment. Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. Thanks for joining the final part of this three-part series entitled Leadership Through Crisis. We've covered topics of empathy during the COVID-19 pandemic, equity, diversity, and inclusion in both your personal and professional lives, and allyship in the fight against systemic oppression. And although this concludes the second season of the show, we encourage you to take advantage of the resources below on Genesis.com and refer back to previous episodes where you can learn more about how to better your business, whether it be in the contact center space or beyond. And I want to personally thank each and every one of you for your continued support of the podcast. Be sure to subscribe, share, and stay tuned for the next season of Take a Moment. Don, I'd kind of like to get your response to a definition, I think a a pretty good one, of allyship. And it comes from author Roxane Gay in an article that she wrote for Marie Claire entitled On Making Black Lives Matter. And this is what she said. Black people do not need allies. We need people to stand up 
and take on the problems born of oppression as their own, without remove or distance. We need people to do this even if they cannot fully understand what it's like to be oppressed for their race or ethnicity, gender, sexuality, ability, class, religion, or any other marker of identity. We need people to use common sense to figure out how to participate in social justice. End quote. Don, when we talk about different definitions, I'm wondering how you would respond to that one when it comes to allyship and how you view it. You know, this, there's some things that the author says there that I'm 100% in agreement with, right? Which has to do with really the person who I look at as being the ally. If I'm going to be an ally for someone, I need to do the homework. I can't rely on them, especially now, I think, in a day and age that we're in, to be able to give me the primer, right? To take me through and give me the tutorial on, you know, what does it mean to be a black person in America? Go out, do the homework, do the study, be ready to have the conversation with that person. And I think that's what Roxanne is saying, or at least that's my interpretation. I would still say that ally is really a good, strong word, because for me, I can't be an ally unless I have done the homework. Because then I'm, what am I? I'm a sham. I'm in it for the moment. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, the next fun thing comes along and I'm gone. So, so I, I kind of agree with some pieces of what she's saying. And, and yet at the same time, I disagree that that ally is not the right term. I don't have a better one. I'm not sure she offers one, but everything that she says after that first entry point, I totally agree. If I'm going to be an ally, I got to do the homework. I got to understand. I got to drive for, and I think I, I've said this to you guys before, I cannot know what it's like to be a black woman in America because I will never be a black woman in America. The only way is for me to seek to understand from those that are. You know, and I can say that about a black man in America. I can say that about an Asian woman in America. It, I only am who I am. I'm a white male in America, right? But if I seek to understand what it's like to be in that person's place and study and do the homework and do the evaluation of what it means and try to come up with what does that mean to me and how do I feel about it? And more importantly, what can I do about it? Then I think I'm on the road to being able to help. I wanted to kind of shift a little bit over into the sponsorship that you've done in the past as an executive in the corporate world. As most of our listeners are in that role themselves, I wonder what are some starting points you would recommend for leaders that want to take that step, that actually signify that they are an ally? that they are a sponsor, that they're actually doing this, not because it's the cool thing that all the other executives are talking about, but because it's really something that they, in their core, believe is necessary to do. Yeah, I think the first thing is really to understand what your motivation is. I mean, for me, it was, it was pretty easy. I'm a very inquisitive, always learning type of individual always trying to understand, you know, the different perspectives or, you know, my wife was in the professional world. And so there were a lot of things that we were able to share because we had similar understanding and similar roles, if you would, within the corporate world. So you've got that. Then you've got being able to be vulnerable, I think is really important, right? Because you're going to find yourself in situations that you don't know, and it's okay to not know. And one of the best ways to deal with that 
is I think this concept of reverse mentoring, which is really kind of cool. I mean, we all know what mentoring is, and it's usually somebody that's an experienced person pulling a, a person that has less experience under their wing and giving them the benefit of their experience. While reverse mentoring is similar, but it would be Mari, you mentoring me, this old guy on the other side of the phone, right? And giving me the benefit of your perspective. That's equally powerful. And so if you think about that as a step, to me, that's a great way to get started because then, you know, you have the opportunity to open your eyes and look at things through the other person's lens, right? As opposed to asking them to do that for you. Then you can play that all in and say, okay, so now I get ready to take that next step, which is, right, how do I act on behalf of, which is really what sponsorship is all about. And um, it's a natural step then, I think, to be able to step in and go, okay, so now how do I move from understanding to taking action on behalf of? And really, because I've taken the opportunity to get to know the individual which has helped me to get to know the group to some extent, depending on how deep those conversations have been. And then that gives me an opportunity to be able to speak on behalf of and get deeper into the story behind the story. You've mentioned before this notion of when there's an executive sponsor, their willingness to spend their capital Mm -hmm. on someone. As someone who has been an executive, how did you navigate that I'm ready to use my capital on this or on this person or on this topic. Part of the answer is being aware of the environment, what's going on throughout my career. I mean, there was a number of different persons that, you know, I was sponsor for, right. That I would speak on their behalf. There were a number of people that I was not their sponsor, but I did speak on their behalf too. Um, So it's not like a, you know, it's one person at a time type of thing. You know, typically people, especially when you think about people in VP levels, director, senior director and director levels and up, they've got more than one person that they're trying to speak on behalf of, if you will. So what it means though, is you really have to know the individual. You have to know what it is that they are capable of, what it is that they're looking for, what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. You got to do your homework to be able to act on and and speak on their behalf. And then it becomes easy because as leaders, we're always in conversations about assignments, work that has to get done, assignments that, you know, that are coming up for people that we need to assign people to opportunities for promotion. We're always having discussions around, you know, review cycles and what does this person need next in order to be ready for that next job? when you think about organizational dynamics. So there's an, a lot of opportunities for leaders to be able to think through and have an understanding the individual's capabilities at a deeper level than sometimes we think we can. That's what it calls for in order to be you know, that sponsor, in order to be able to speak on their behalf and advocate for them. Don, when you think about allyship and the work that it takes to be an ally, we talk a lot about learning. Of course, we also know that in that uh, work to become an ally, there's a lot that we need to unlearn as well, people like you and I. There are things that we've just accepted as being true throughout our lives and kind of not given a second thought of. So there's a lot of unlearning there that needs to happen. And because those things exist, a lot of mistakes can be made by very well-intentioned people and Mm -hmm. either the actions that they take or the questions that they ask or the ways in which they're seeking to help. Can you talk a little bit about 
mistakes that you have seen well-intentioned people do when they're trying to act as an ally or trying to learn to become an ally? What are some of those mistakes that you've seen before that can be avoided by people who are seeking to help? I had to learn to be where I am. It might amaze you that I wasn't born this way. Um, <laughs> I, had to, I had to learn to be where I am. I had to learn to understand you know, where people were coming from and the power of words. You know, as much as we try, or as much as individuals might try to be careful about the words that they choose, it's not always that easy. And it can be hurtful, not what you intended at all. I know I have been guilty of a number of those mistakes. I was well-intentioned or whatever, but it doesn't sort of matter. You know, I think some pitfalls that folks can fall into might be trying to identify with another group by saying, oh, you know what? Uh, some things happened to me that were tough as well. Let me share those with you. Or mm -hmm. making the problem of systematic racism like about me. Let me, let me make the story about me for, for a couple minutes and, and tell you how I'm rallying to save the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think, Nate, you're almost getting to that piece of sympathy versus empathy. Right what is the right tool? And sometimes people equate empathy as being sympathy and, and it kind of comes off <laughs> as, oh, yeah. I, I can only imagine what you're feeling. But at least, I mean, Brene Brown has that fantastic YouTube on the difference between sympathy and empathy. And I, mm -hmm. I almost feel like that's kind of part of going through that journey of learning to become uncomfortable as much as possible so you can unlearn being vulnerable. One of the stories that you shared before, Don, is about kind of that surprise that you got when your colleagues asked you to become <laughs> the sponsor for a affinity group. Uh, kind of talk, talk us through that. And that might maybe shed some light on some of your thought processes, which might maybe help some of our executives who might think, well, I don't know how I can be a sponsor for, for this group. I'm not a black woman or I'm not an LGBTQ man, trans woman, how can I actually yep. be an executive sponsor for them? Yeah. So this, the story is, is that I had an individual that was working for me that was part of an employee resource group that we had, uh, one of the leaders of the, of the group. And she came to me one day and said, you know, we're looking for a sponsor. And I really think that you would be a great sponsor for our group. And it was a chapter. So you think about different locations, major campus locations, having chapters. And, and it, was, it was something I'd never, it kind of never came to my mind. So I looked across the table at her and I said, but you realize I'm not black. And, and she just laughed and she said, yeah, I noticed. And so then we had the conversation about why, you know, wh why me? What is it that I could bring to the table or as somebody would say to the fight that would be of use for the organization? And, you know, at the end of the day, that was kind of the first introduction to really understanding what allyship is about, right? And so I did, I did sign up. I did take that assignment on. I learned a ton. I thought, you know, hell, I've worked with African-American individuals my whole life, but I learned a lot more about what it's like to be a black person in a corporation in the U.S. So I was able to give them the help that they wanted because they wanted to try to understand leadership. That was one of the things they were looking for. And, you know, what are you guys thinking about? And so we had some really great conversations about that. I was able to help them with some of the activities that they wanted to put on. 
and go and get sponsorship for that, you know, from the corporation. It also opened the door for me to meet with sponsors from other chapters to get to know what's happening in the community at large and what are things that we can do to push the agenda forward. You know, those are some of the things that kind of come to mind, but that was the starting point. You know, I talk about starting points, right? And, you know, we had the, the situation with my wife that, you know, got me started. And this situation got me started even more in terms of understanding some and seeking to understand more about what it's like to be Black in America, Black in an American corporation, and what is it that we who are not can do if we're willing to do it. We're able to do it. We just have to be willing to do it. In terms of taking those actions, Don, let's do a little hypothetical. A year from now, how would you like to see specifically the information technology corporate space move the needle towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and allyship? And what are those steps that the leaders of those organizations should be making today to continue to progress throughout this year? You know, I think Genesis took a really important step in naming a chief diversity officer, Eric Thomas. That's an, an extremely important step. The recognition that this is something that's needed that can help us drive a more inclusive culture and agenda within Genesis, I think is extremely important. And I'm hopeful that Eric will do a great job and that he gets the help and the support that he's going to need in order to, to move this forward. But I think that the, the question of what else can we do, what else needs to happen, I think every individual needs to kind of open their minds and be open and understanding of and trying to seek to, to learn more about what's going on within the um, corporate world, but also in their personal lives in terms of there's a lot. I mean, that we're at a point, I think, in society that I'm hopeful and I guess I could have said back in the 60s or 70s, you know, that there were points where I could have been hopeful that uh, we were going to make some dramatic breakthroughs. But here we are in 2020. The fact that this is not just a U.S. movement, it is a U.S. movement that's gotten global support, I think makes it extremely different. I think that we're at a point that a year from now, if we step back and look, will all the problems be solved? No, I don't think so. Will we have made dramatic steps? I sure hope so. I sure hope that we have a much better understanding of what's the right activity to, I hate the term defund police. I don't personally believe in it, but I think looking to try to figure out how do we do better with the funds that we have, how do we raise a level of expectations of what we expect of our elected officials and our public servants like police, for instance, if we can look back and say we've made some dramatic progress in terms of race relations between police departments and communities, you know, that'll be extremely important. That's got to be high on the list, right? Because it's such a hot button right now. But the next one that's going to be really harder is race relations amongst the constituents, right? There's a lot of hatred and anxiety out there that you know, we have to figure out how do we deal with that? How do we channel it in a different way? How do we eliminate it? How do we make sure that as those that are disenfranchised today become more enfranchised, if that's a word, that those who are enfranchised, you know, don't feel like they're disenfranchised? How do we make the sum of all the parts greater than the whole is, I think, really important. So 
That's what I'm hopeful for. That's what I hope we can do. When I think about it from a corporate perspective, though, you know, there's a lot of heavy lifting that has to happen. Corporations have to step back and think about who they are, who they want to be recognized as. The leaders of those corporations need to be thinking about what do I want to stand for? You know, I think we've got some really good examples out there of, of people that are taking actions and taking steps and being vocal. And we have some also some good examples of people still sitting on the sidelines. I think that, you know, if I think about what's going on in Genesis today, and I don't purport to know everything of what's going on in Genesis, but when I see some of the things that, that are happening, I'm hopeful that a year from now, Genesis is going to be a much better place than it is. Not that it's a bad place today. And it's, this is not a question about being bad or good. It's really being just and being open and inclusive and recognizing that we all bring something different to the fight. And how do we make something out of all of that? As opposed to saying, well, I really only need this. You know, we need everybody in the boat. It kind of evokes some of those epic superhero movies that um, I know Nate loves <laughs> to talk about often, but it really does take a village and it really does take everybody's superpowers, really. I mean, that's another example of people coming together and using all of their collective power toward doing good because we can always do better. And I think that's been the heart of this conversation as we can always do better. Great conversation around what allyship means. I think that's given us a better view of what it means to truly be an ally. Uh, we really thank you for your time, Don, for taking a moment with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And I know with the focus that, that you folks and leadership of Genesis are putting on this particular topic and other things that are important to employees and customers, that you guys will do great. So thank you. <laughs>